Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 4. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to help yourself to one under your seat. Um, If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep it. (laughs) Our gift to you. And as you're turning there, it's super exciting. I heard from the Mannings, it was probably Saturday, I think, um, or Friday, I forget. Um, They've been in the United States for back for about a a month or so after a little over three years in Mongolia. Um, They're super excited to to come. We've been trying to make arrangements on where, you know, getting them here, the time that they can can spend here. and so they got to me this week and they said, hey, I'm, if it's, we don't want to put any pressure on you, but some things fell through and how does April look? And I said, hey, don't feel bad for us. We're here for you to encourage you. And, and if April's the dates it will work, then we'll, we'll take care of it. And so they're going to come in on, I think it's April 9th, if that's a Saturday, and they're going to stay until the day after um, Good Friday, so the day before Easter. So they're going to be with us for a significant amount of time. Um, and looking for, for those of you that don't know the Mannings, they really are a part of our church. Um, when this church restarted almost coming up on four years now, there were, um, they visited on June 25th of 2007. Um, I'd only been here for a month. I hadn't even moved to Valley Center and with their family of, at the time they had four, they're up to six now, like total, including the parents. Um, and my family, I think we had about 20 people in attendance. And so they've really been a vital piece, I think, in our restarting the church. And that they, so they have been praying for us. They've known about us. I've gone to visit them. They're excited to kind of come and, and see us as a body. And, and normally during times, I, it's a frustration of mine with missionaries, is a church that endorses a missionary that, as we, you partner with somebody, you know who they are, you send them away, and they go through great trials and tribulations there in Mongolia. I was there for two weeks, got sick as a dog. It was just brutal. Um, it was an awesome trip. But it's, but I was able to see their life and how hard they work, and, and they come back to the States, and they have to readjust to our culture, our food, because everything that they're used to is, is not here anymore. And then they go visit with churches and really kind of have to, to sell them. And churches have a problem. But we want to see the notches on your belt. It's like we're just trying to learn the language so we can communicate in their heart tongue. And, and so I made it clear. I said, well, when you're here, we're not we're here to kind of encourage you to refresh your soul. Um, and you can tell everybody else that you've like being vetted by Valley Baptist Church like that. We're putting. But what we're going to do is we found a fully furnished house on Palomar cheaper than a hotel room by the closest hotel we're going to put them up there for 15 days they get a kitchen they have you know they have a jacuzzi so i'll probably be crashing their place you know up on <laughs> hey guys can i come hang out don't worry about me i'll just be in the jacuzzi you guys hang out do whatever um but it'll be a nice time of refreshment and and they're really excited to to meet all of us and 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 the body and so it's exciting. So plan on being here. I mean, who's not up for some street tacos? I love, I mean, you say carne asada. I say yes before I even know what I got myself into. Going to Mexico on Saturday, it's always embarrassing because it's like, I'll take five. And I eat my five. It's like, oh, I'm pretty stuffed, but I'll take five more. It's like, because I don't know when the next time I'll be back to Mexico to get the good food down here. And so it'll be a great time, and we're we're I'm just we're we blessed in meeting this family, and they'll be blessed in seeing us, and and I, I'm just looking forward to the time. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll read Luke chapter four verses fourteen through thirty. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day, Lord. I thank you for the Manning family and the blessing that they've been to our body, Lord. We pray that um, Lord is their back. Um, we ask Lord that you would give them refreshment, that you would give them encouragement, Father, that you would. Lord, help their family. They have four children from one to seven years old, and they're traveling all around the country. They're, they're keeping a very busy schedule in a culture that is unknown to even their two youngest children. This is their first time that they're in their mother country. And so, Lord, we pray for them as they adjust back into our culture, as they're tired. Lord, we pray that you would give them rest and, and just bless their time as a family, that they would find encouragement, that they would 
be renewed. Um, we pray for this opportunity that you've provided us to um, put them up in a home up on Palomar. And Lord, we pray that this would be a time that their spirits would be renewed, that as a family they would be able to just um, to exhale and, and to enjoy time with one another. Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, for this. And we pray, Lord, as we open up the scriptures today, Lord, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text. Lord, help us to see what uh, this meant in context, what Luke was intending to write us through your spirit. And Father, we pray that you would soften our heart, Lord. Uh, We pray um, that you would help us to hear your voice through the story. Lord, we thank you that the word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And we humble ourselves before you, Lord, uh, longing and awaiting you to speak to us. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And when he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set those who are oppressed, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Bless you. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth that there were many widows in Israel during the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this word. Lord, we pray that as we navigate our way through it, that you would help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look out and amongst our culture, not necessarily even Christian culture, your work, your schools, wherever you hang out, who do people say that Jesus is? What are some of the things we hear? This is like an actually you guys can participate. This isn't a rhetorical question. A good, okay, we hear a good man. What else do we hear about him? A good teacher. A good teacher. So we have teachers come through. What else do we hear about him? Prophet. What else? Lord, what do I hear over there? What? Healer. Healer. Yes, that's one. What else? Savior. We hear all kinds of things. Great teacher, a moral leader, a prophet. Some will even say, oh, he never even claimed to be God. And as a Christian, I think we kind of struggle. What what did he say about himself? What does the scripture say about him? And at this point, it's important for us to go back to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. These four verses need to be at the forefront of our minds any time that we cover anything in Luke and any time we cover anything in Acts. We tend to kind of start the story, move on, forget about these verses. But these verses help us to understand what the author Luke is trying to achieve in his writing. 
And so in verse chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Luke writes, first off, listen, as we look at the life, death, burial, resurrection, the launch of the early church, this was amazing. Historically speaking, nothing of this magnitude has ever happened. The fact that we're 2,000 years removed from Jesus, and if you go into any sort of public arena and mention the name of Jesus, there will, I mean, you can make headlines by a name of a, some guy from a know-nothing town in Nazareth some 2,000 years ago. There are very few, very few people that I, I don't think of anybody historically has that sort of explosiveness over the very mention of his name. That if you pray and at the end of the prayer you say, Jesus, that can get you in trouble. Luke understands this. They understood it. And all kind of people tried to document the history that happened during that time. Verse 2, he continues, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So Luke lets us in. He was not an eyewitness. He is a Gentile. He came in after the fact. We're going to learn that he began to investigate, interview people, eyewitnesses, tell their story from all over. He was a skeptic. But he put everything together. Verse 3, it says, It seemed fitting for me, that's Luke as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So he says, listen, I've interviewed people. I've sat down. I've put it, pieced it all together. I've got all the stories. History holds. He interviewed Mary. He would have interviewed all. He had access to Paul. He had access to all of the people in the early church. He was documenting, writing, researching. Then he put it out in chronological order for this guy, Theophilus, who was a believer in the early church. And in verse 4, we see the so that in the English is a hyena clause in the Greek, which tells you it's the purpose statement. The reason he wrote the first three verses is to tell Theophilus, this is the reason of his writing, so that, and it means the same thing in the English, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. And so Luke, as he's writing, he's being precise, careful, selecting words, sharing with us history so that we would be clear over what happened during Jesus's life. And so when we get culture saying Jesus was a good man, Jesus was a good leader, he was a healer, he um, was a moral leader, he was one to look to. A few weeks ago, I got in a, a, a sort of an argument with a with a... And it was a non-spiritual argument. It was a sort of a, I forget what it was about, so it doesn't really matter. (laughs) But it wasn't even spiritual. One of my more liberal friends who is not a believer then quotes Jesus. And I was like, whoa, you're bringing Jesus into this conversation? We can bring Jesus into the conversation. I feel comfortable with that. And then she replied and said, you know what? I'm not a believer. I'm an atheist. But man, this guy was a profound teacher. And he had said a ton of stuff that we should take to heart in our culture today. Really? Sounds good to me, exactly. But the problem is, is they manipulate, people will manipulate the the history. They're revisionists, meaning they want to rewrite history as it happened. And Josh McDowell in his book, More Than a Carpenter, he said it clearly. There's three options. I want to make sure I get the right amount of fingers. Sometimes I say there's three options. I'm like, wait, that's four. Three. (laughs) He said a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Those are three options. See, you can't say I am Lord if you're not Lord. You're either lying or you're crazy. And those are valid options. But you can't be a good teacher and at the same time teach spiritual truth on things And then say, oh, yeah, and I'm also God. No, because that would make you a bad teacher. So we really, if we're going to be logical and truthful with history, there's three categories that we can place Jesus in. Either he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he's Lord. The position of this church is that he is Lord. Okay, So, so therefore, if he's Lord, the things that he says... There's authority there. We have to submit to him because he's God. He's the Messiah. He's fulfillment of so many things. And so he might say stuff that often steps on our toe, kind of makes us feel uncomfortable, hurts us in certain ways. 
But we have to say he's God. And he knows what he's talking about. I, man, I don't understand, but I got to trust him. And so today, as we look at this story, for most of us in reading the story, it might not be that big of a deal. But at the end of his message, there was, a, there was essentially a mob mentality trying to kill him. So he wasn't giving a, a nice sort of easy message. He taught to them their action or their resulting feelings for them is that they wanted to attack him, throw him off a cliff and kill him. So what he said didn't go over very well. And so as we look at this story, Luke's placing it here so that we would know clearly that Jesus did indeed claim to be God. He did indeed claim to be the Messiah. And so then that forces us into, well, what are we going to do with Jesus? Are we going to say, no, he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord? And my prayer is that we would move to the position that he's Lord. And then there's some major implications in our life. Now let's look at the story, verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And so from this story, Luke is going from the temptation straight to the story in Nazareth, his hometown. If we, if we didn't have this, we think, oh, this is the first thing that sort of happened here. But we can tell that, by the way, there's rumors spreading. There's things had been happening. So by looking at the other Gospels, we know that prior to this event, some things that have happened first John chapter 2, that Jesus has performed his first miracle. He turned uh, water into wine at a wedding. He healed a guy in Capernaum. And so he's in this region of Galilee. Now, don't let this confuse you, because on this map here, we have the Sea of Galilee. We're at the northern part of Israel. There's a river that flows from Galilee down south, and it's called Jordan River. This is this. We're learning. Knowing geography helps. And there's a body of water down south, which is called what? The Dead Sea. Okay. So the Sea of Galilee, it's a big lake, 12 miles north to south by six miles east to west. It sits on the eastern edge of the region of Galilee. And so you have this little dotted line going around. That whole region is the Galilee. So Jesus is going from synagogue to synagogue. He's teaching. He's doing stuff. Miracles are happening. Word is spreading about him. Right here, about in between the A and the L of the big word Galilee, sits the town Nazareth. This uh, Mount Tabor, this is a huge valley running through here, and it's hill country. So you go up into the hills. So he's going to return to his town. They've heard about him. This is a know-nothing town in the middle of nowhere. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Mishnah. It's not mentioned anywhere in um, Josephus' writings. Nowhere. Nazareth is on the map because this guy named Jesus was born and turned the world upside down. They're hearing what's going on. Ooh. Jesus, from Nazareth, one of our own. He's coming. Now, in the synagogues in a town needed 10 Jewish men in order to form a synagogue. It was not the temple. These were little areas of religious instruction, education. They would learn to read and write using the scriptures. It was the the, the heart of the community. There would be an attendant that would maintain the scrolls, whatever books of the Bible they had, there would be a special room within this area that there would be attendant of the scriptures. There would be sort of the, I don't know, kind of the pastor, but not really necessarily a priest. They might have had a priest. They might not have had a priest. But he was responsible for the care and the maintenance. Week to week, they would have teaching on Sabbath. It could be that guy. It could be any one of the men within the group. If there was a rabbi that was passing through, they would always open up the area for him. Jesus takes advantage of this. We see Paul and Peter, they would go to the synagogue. They would have an open door. They had all of the credentials. They would begin sharing. And so this is what's happening as we move in to, as he's moving around the Galilee. Now in verse 16, we see that now he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And so we see this picture. Jesus has been traveling all through the Galilee region, doing miracles. He eventually, as crowds are growing, in Mark chapter 4, there's one story where the guy's like, 
hey, you rocked the house at the synagogue last night. They want you to come back tomorrow. And Jesus says, no, I got to go. I got to move on and preach elsewhere. So as the crowds were wanting to follow him, he wanted to go to places that were unknown. He, it's been said that Jesus on his earthly ministry always tried to send people away from him. And then after his resurrection, we've always been trying to, to bring in numbers. And so as he walks into his town, this is his hometown. He knew everybody there, tiny, maybe 50, 100 people. As he's walking in, there's a guy named Alfred Erdersheim, and he wrote a guy in the the Life and Times of the Messiah. He was a Jewish man, lived during the 1800s, converted to Christianity, wrote a huge volume of explaining New Testament Judaism to our minds that we've lost track of. And he wrote something beautiful that I read in preparing this week. Listen to this. This is him telling the story of Jesus making this trek into Nazareth. It's written in sort of 1800 English, so I have to really focus here. And I ask you to focus your ears and open the picture up in your mind as I read. Yet as we yet as we follow Jesus to the city of his childhood and the home of his humility, we can scarcely repress thoughts of what must have stirred in his soul as he once more entered the well-known valley and beheld the scenes of each of which some earlier memory must have attached. Sabbath morn dawned, and early he repaired to the synagogue, where as a child, a youth, a man, he had so often worshipped in the humble retirement of his rank, sitting not up there among the elders and the honored, but far back. The old well-known faces were around him, The old, well-remembered words and services fell on his ear. How different they had always been to him than to them, with whom he had thus mingled in common worship. And now he was again among them, truly a stranger among his own countrymen, this time to be looked at, listened to, tested, tried, used, or cast aside as the case might be. And so Alfred Erdenshine draws our minds that as Jesus is walking into Nazareth, these are familiar roads. Other places he might have said, hey, do you guys know where the synagogue is in Capernaum? Peter would say, oh, yeah, I live there. Let me take you. I'll take you right to the synagogue. I know where it is. Nazareth, he's like, hey, guys, this is my turf. I know where everything is. Let's go. I'll show you right where it is. He walks in. He's passing by the house of his cousins, his relatives, friends, family, goes into the synagogue, memories of being a young boy, the Messiah, sitting at the back of the synagogue, getting no respect. And this time he walks in. He's the rabbi. Nazareth, not even on a map. Now he's rocking the world and they're going, that's right. Jesus came from our town. Oh, we can't wait to hear him. So he's sitting now, not in the back of the synagogue, in the front of the synagogue. They're eager to hear what they're This is their child. This is one of their own to rejoice in. And then we get to verse 17 or the middle part. uh, I'm sorry. I don't want to skip ahead. So he gets to the synagogue and there's a little phrase there. And as was his custom, I, I want to pause here. See, Jesus's custom was to go to the synagogue week in, week out, every single week. He wasn't going here to do some miraculous thing per se. But it was his custom to go week in, week out. Got a little off of my notes. But I think it's awesome that our church, like I, that we are, we realize that, okay, coming to church is important and we're going to be here. Um, Early in my life, in my spiritual life, I remember distinctly kind of crossing like a point in spiritual maturity where I realized like, no, being in church and worshiping is, is important. And my being a Navy SEAL and traveling all the time is not an excuse for me to miss church. So I don't care where I am. And there were times, of course, that I couldn't make church. But wherever I was, I would find a church. I would go to church. And I would go to different churches every single Sunday if I could. And if not, then I would do, like if I had a couple guys, that we would get together and we would, wor- we would worship, we would read the scripture. We would fumble our way through as best we could. It's really funny looking back on how we interacted. 
And it's important because Hebrews 10.25 says, don't neglect meeting with one another and fellowshipping. This is a huge component of spiritual growth and being in a community where the Bible is taught, where you have one another to, to rally up with one another, to encourage one another in our walk, to grow in your faith. Uh, Lloyd Beth, who's not here this week, um, she is probably, she normally sits in the very last row. She is probably the member, she, no, not, not probably. She is absolutely the longest standing member at Valley Baptist Church. She became a member in like 1960 something, like I, like 61 or 62. She's here every single week without fail, except this week. <laughs> but my point is when she's not here, somewhere 30, 40, somewhere along the line, one of the pastors would tease her when she was away. She has family in Phoenix. And so whenever she comes back, if she misses a Sunday next week, what she'll do is she will bring me a bulletin from the church that she worshiped at. And I love it. She's like, I wasn't, you know, she's a saint. And she's like, I wasn't backsliding last week. I was in church and here's the both. And I look and I'm like, oh, I love it. So last year when I missed my first couple of weeks in Lake Tahoe, I ran, I stuck the bulletin into the Bible and she was gone. I wanted to hand it back to her. And it was just special to, to that, this culture. And, and it's like, man, that's great. And there's a couple other people who've started doing that with me. So if you're gone on a Sunday, but you're at another church, bring me back the bulletin. Anna thinks what I should do is like, you know, those old barbecue restaurants where they staple dollars or ties to the wall. She wants a license plate. She wants me in my office to start stapling bulletins around the wall. I'm like, that's a great idea. I think we'll run with that. You know, in 50 years, this place will have old tattered, like, like, you know, the old license. Oh, look at that church. So and so did. They were having a potluck on Wednesday, you know, like back way back when. But the, the, the point and the, and the point is not me as a pastor saying, oh, I want you here because you guys need to have the custom of being here on church on Sunday. Because that way I guarantee that I have my attendance, that the numbers are up, makes me look good. I don't care. I don't care how boring I am. You got to be here. Because if I know you're going to be here, then I don't have to prepare. I don't have to study. That's not what this is saying. And there might be some pastors that might have that in their hearts, but that's not my heart. I grew up in a terribly boring church. And when I became a Christian and the guy started teaching the Bible, it's like, hey, wait a minute. The Bible's not boring. It might. It might hurt us when we talk like it might step on our toes and we might not like what it says but it's not boring and so my aim is to teach it faithfully in a way that's encouraging you but not to necessarily i'll step on like the bible will step on toes and every now and again i'll get an email saying i had a terribly hard time with what you said on sunday and i'll and i i I love those sort of things and always i'll reply i said yeah me too like it was it was a hard one i really didn't like what it said um but then I'll always say, did I violate the text? Now, I, I don't want to say stuff that the scripture out of con- Like if it didn't, if, it, if the Bible didn't say it, I could be wrong. I've said stuff that wasn't like I've misspoken. But then the question is, well, did I, did I misspeak the scripture? Because there's times when it hurts and I'll never forget. And, and I'll get an amen from anybody who was here during that time. I thought it would be a great idea to go through Ecclesiastes. <laughs> And it was, there was a dark cloud in here for many, many, many. I would go look ahead and I go, oh no, it's just going to get worse. And I can't tell you like during that season, how many, like how many times I quoted Mick Jagger in church, you know, I can't, I've tried and I've tried and there's no satisfaction. And, but it's like, no, the Bible's the word of God. It's living, active, sharpener, two-edged sword. And I'm going to say stuff. It's food. It's how we grow. When you're sick and you go to the doctor, one of the very first questions they ask you, are you eating? How's your appetite? And if you're not eating, that's a sign that there's other issues going on. And us eating is taking in the Bible and reading it, studying it, line by line, verse by verse, going through. There are times for topical medicine, like there are times for medicine. When there's a sickness, you need to attack it and address it with medicine. There are times for topical messages. But in large part, we teach the Bible here verse by verse so that we can grow. When people come to me and they say, oh, I've got a terrible problem, whether they go here or they go somewhere else, 
I'm frustrated, my life's a mess. I normally ask him, are you going to church? Are you plugged in? Are you growing? Most times, no. Most times, no. And it's like the first thing you need is you need to get plugged into a church. You need to grow because the Bible will bring you health as you take it in, as you grow and get nutrients from the word of God, as you surround yourself with other believers. And I love, that's, that's one thing I love about this church is that we, people here are like faithful. And if you're not here, I know, like it's like, oh, I know why they're gone. Or I get a bulletin. If I don't see somebody for a couple weeks and it's like, like I'm going to share with Bobby. Bobby, like a while ago, she wasn't here for a couple weeks. I'm like, oh, I, I felt like I needed to call her the first week and I didn't. It's like, oh. Then the second week she wasn't here. And I call her, I'm like, hey, Bobby, are you okay? She's like, no, actually I was going to church two weeks ago and I fell. And it was like, oh. You, you know, like, we, and it's it's how it should be that we're in community. When you're not here, we notice that we can encourage one another. I love it. That, that would, the downside is when you're a visitor, people go, hey, you look different. You know, you're not around here. How are you doing? Can we love on you? And what I found is we're really good about our visitors become regulars. So then it's like a few weeks goes by and they're not here. It's like, are you doing okay? I was worried about you. Oh, no, something happened. We all understand life. Life is a very real thing we deal with. And there are times when stuff happens. And that's why I love that we kind of welcome people in love and then it becomes their home. And then when they're not here, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm worried about so-and-so because I haven't seen them. And that's what needs to happen. And so here, Jesus, I now moving ahead back to where I was supposed to be. Jesus walks into the temple as was his custom. He or not the temple, excuse me, the synagogue. This is his hometown synagogue. Everybody knows him. Everybody's looking at him. They've been hearing. He turned water into wine. He healed a man in Capernaum. Great things. They're anticipating what's going to happen. And so in verse, the latter part of verse 16, it says, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set those who are oppressed, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all In this synagogue, we're fixed upon him. So first, I want to unpack this text of Isaiah. Isaiah is a fascinating book. We took like a year and like three months working through it, kind of going through. There were times when I had the similar thoughts of like of of Ecclesiastes. Like, why did we choose this book? That's like it's getting kind of like like I said over and over again. It's not that I don't understand what's being said. It's that I don't like what's being said here. This is like, this is not good. The story of Isaiah, he was a prophet that was in the southern kingdom. Uh, There was Jerusalem. Judea was the region. There were two tribes in the southern half. Israel had been divided. Ten tribes were on the north. Isaiah was a prophet probably in 700 BC. He received a vision from the Lord. He realized his sinfulness. He said, in chapter 6, here I am, Lord, but I'm a man of unclean lips. The angel comes, burns his mouth out, washes it out with soap, makes him clean, says, go teach the message. So then as you go through Isaiah, it can be terribly confusing because here he is. He's seen a revelation from God. He's speaking things as if they've already happened. So he starts talking about near future, more distant future, and then all the way out to the new millennium. He foretells a hundred years beforehand. During this time, the northern kingdom had been taken over by Assyria. They'd been brought into captivity. Shortly thereafter, the southern kingdom was taken captivity by Babylon in 586 BC. I believe it was. This is where we read about Daniel in the Old Testament being taken captive and led away. So he foretells before it's going to happen, they're going to be taken into captivity. Then they're going to be released. And eventually the Messiah is going to come, establish his new heavens, his new earth. He's going to transform everything. Well, the part that he reads from is looking in that section, looking beyond. See, during the time of his reading, once Israel was scattered, 
they never have been brought together for the most part. In, in, in uh, 1947, when they were reformed as a country, they have a very small sliver modern-day Israel for what God has laid out in the Bible. During this time, they lived in the land, but they were under Roman rule. They were in oppression. They were looking to be set free. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. They still are waiting for the Messiah to come. Most of Israel has missed the first coming of the Messiah. And so this passage, verse 18 and 19. Well, before we get here, I want to kind of back up before I start unpacking this. See, we all have the luxury of having Bibles in our lap. We eat. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat. The scriptures are readily available. Not so during this time. The whole town would have portions of the scriptures. And so we read in this story, in verse 16, that Jesus stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him by the attendant. And so the guy who manages the scriptures would go back to the back room, pull out Isaiah, because it was time for the Isaiah reading. He would walk it forward. Then they didn't have chapters and verses and books. It would be a scroll. He'd have to like unroll it till he got to the section that he was supposed to read. This was a big deal. As the guy came out from the scripture, everybody would stand and watch the Bible. So I'm going to kind of put this into perspective for us. I want us to feel this story. So Daniel back there in the booth, he's my scripture attendant. So we're all going to rise and we're going to watch. Pretend like he's a bride getting married because that's a bit, basically how it is. He's coming forward. We'd all stand up. Stand up. This is a good time. Shake it out. Stretch. We're in reverence. The word of God is now approaching me. We are all standing. I'm going to grab the Bible. He's going to retreat to where he was. So there's no distractions. I wait until he gets back to where he came from. I then am going to open the Bible. I don't have a scroll, but finding Isaiah in a new Bible can be just as difficult. So I'm going to find Isaiah chapter 61. Verses 1 and 2. Now, he didn't have chapter and verse. He just had to find the place in the scriptures. And he reads... The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Attendant. And this would all be very serious. We're a little more laid back today. We all watch it go back. Now he's in the hole. We can all kind of sit down. Jesus would take a seat. We think this is very weird because I don't, maybe I should start teaching. I move too much. I'd fall over. (laughs) So he sits down. We think that seems an odd place to teach from. Now, for in colleges, what do they call? Like, I'm in a doctoral program. I have a person that's over me. What is the person that's over you called? The chair. the chair. We refer to the chair, the seat. It's a place of authority. He would sit down in the seat of authority. He just read that speaking of the Messiah. He looks at him. The scripture says that they all were staring at him intently. What's our kid from Nazareth going to say? He looks at him. He says, today, I forgot. today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing they knew exactly what he was saying there was there was there is there is no this isn't this and this is like a subtle this is a subtle place that you're all through it's clear When people say Jesus never claimed to be God, that's absolute fallacy. He claimed to be God. He, they knew that this part in Isaiah, if you go through Isaiah, you read it, you study it. It's clear. This is referencing the coming of the Messiah. And he says, it's been fulfilled in me today. It's powerful. Now we'll, we'll look at this. 
And, and unfortunately, like I'm reading commentator, commentators this week, and I think that there's a lot of in Christian, Christ, Christianity. I was going to try to use a bigger word. I think it's called Christendom or something, but it's just Christianity. That have taken this to say that Jesus is saying that the main message of Christianity is to feed the poor, to help the poor, to, 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 to do all these good works to them. Which I'm not saying that Christianity is opposed to. I think Christianity actually kind of endorses this. But Jesus is speaking of their spiritual condition before God. That they're poor in spirit. That you're captives that need to be redeemed. You're blind to spiritual things. You're oppressed spiritually. That you're separated from God. And the Messiah has come to redeem those in the world. That reminds me of Acts, Luke's writing, chapter 3, verse 6, as Peter, church is just formed following the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Peter's going into the temple to, to worship, to preach the gospel. There's a, there's a crippled man at the door that's been there forever begging. So long that he's one of these beggars that's not paying attention to the crowd coming or going. You have money, you have money, you have money, you have money. Do you have money? Do you have money? I'll work for food. I'll work for food. I'll anything. Do you have anything helps? Peter walks by him, looks at him. Look at me. Wake up. Look at me. The dude was like, payday. I'm going to get some money. But Peter says, no, silver and gold I have not. But what I give you is life. And he goes, well, that's Gunner's version. But he shares the gospel with them. And I loved Pacific Garden Mission two weeks ago. The homeless shelter. They, they, they do some in Chicago. Like 2,500 people a day are cared for, fed, showered, shaved, everything taken care of. But the brother who, Reverend so-and-so, something Flossie's husband, McNeil, Reverend McNeil. <laughs> I love it. It reminds me. I tell you, one of my favorite types of churches to go to is black Baptist churches. Love it. I love it. I um, But while I was still in the Navy, there's a church down in San Diego that's like in the hood, Bayview Baptist. Dr. Um, Winters is the pastor there. It's on, he's on TV, on the radio. Service is like three hours long. He preaches it. He sweats. I love it. And they get into it. Oh man, I would, that's where if I could, if I was to take a year off a sabbatical, I'd find a black Baptist church and that's where I do my time off at. And I come back supercharged. And the guy, when we get there, Reverend McNeil, he's, I don't know if he's Baptist, but he's a black preacher. And he brought the, I mean, we're just getting a field trip of the ministry. And he sits down. He's like, I tell you brothers and sisters, you look at these poor people and you say they're homeless. I tell you the truth, if you don't have Christ, I don't care how much money you got, you homeless. If you're poor and you don't have Christ, you're homeless. Preach it, brother. I think there's a couple amens and we're like, and then he like starts going right at the young kids. He's like, you know, when I was your age, I didn't give a rip about what the preacher man had to say to me. And I understand you don't care what I'm saying to you, but I'm going to say it. And I'm like, ooh, I'm so glad I'm out of my teens because I would be angry at this guy at this point. And he starts going. And the point of the matter is, is I've met wealthy, wealthy people who are totally poor in spirit, totally poor in spirit. They understand their condition before God. I've met poor people in the streets who are addicted on alcohol that have been the most arrogant, all-knowing people. They think they got it all. I've also met poor people in the streets that are totally broken. I've met rich people, wealthy people who are arrogant. The heart of this is that we are dying of sin. We're separated from God and we need a savior. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. He reads this and he says, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. I am God. I'm the Messiah. Clear, clear. And when you're up here talking to people, when a wife leans over to her husband or, or, or brother to his sister and he's, shush, shush, shush. I can see it all. Like, guys, I have eyes. I see what's going on there. Like when people laugh and I say something, they lean over. I'm like, 
oh, I wonder if they're making fun of me or if they're adding to the joke because I get real curious. Like, I bet they have a really good line, especially if it's a guy like Dan who's witty. You know, it's like, oh, man. Like, and it wouldn't even be making fun of him. Man, can you, can you just take a microphone and let everybody know what you just said? Because I know we'll all be laughing. You know, that's kind of... But you can't do that, you know. It's church. And um, where was I? And so, <laughs> verse 22... So he sees this, verse 22, and they were all speaking well of him, wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? This, this is one of our kids from Nazareth. He just claimed to be the Messiah. And Jesus is following their thoughts because he is God. He can hear what they're saying. And he looks at them and he says in verse 23, he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb. Look, Dolph, this isn't like a proverb from Proverbs. This is one of those sayings like don't accept wooden nickels, don't, you know, whatever, feed the mouth, feed the hand that feeds you. You know, Proverbs, you know, stuff, sayings, truisms. And he says, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. See, they're just murmuring. And he says, you guys are going to quote this to me. You're going to say, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. See, he knew they'd got the words. They knew that there was a miracle. And he said, instead of just acknowledging for who it is, they're going to be doubting. He says, you're going to tell me to heal myself. You're going to say, just show us a miracle and then we'll really believe. We'll really believe. It gets so much so that in Matthew chapter 12, where the Pharisees were, oh, just show us a miracle. He says, you know what? No more miracles will be done except for the miracle like Jonah. He said, I'll die, I'll raise again. His temple will be destroyed, speaking of his body in Hillary. He talks about his death, burial, resurrection. And we say today, oh, if we could only see a miracle. No, you wouldn't believe. You'd get 12 hours from it and you say, oh, there's no way that really happened. I just, I, I must have had some bad beans or something. I wasn't feeling well and I envisioned it. We wouldn't believe. He goes on to say, Verse 24, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Oh, and while we're speaking about prophets that aren't welcome in their hometown, I want to talk to you about Elijah and Elijah. Well, they weren't talking about it, but he's like, well, since we're on the subject. And there's two prophets. These are very well-known prophets during the times of Israel's history. There's two of them. For grace, when I Bible read, I pronounce the one Elijah and the other one like Elisha. There are two. They're content. Well, there was the older one, and then Elisha came second. Famous. I mean, well-known. Did great things of God. He said, since we're talking about prophets that have been rejected by Israel, let's talk about these two guys that we esteem very highly. Verse 25, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to, oh, I hate, oh, this is such a hard name to say, Zarephath, Zarephath, I've been practicing, I just can't get it, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So he says, during this time, there's a great famine, there's no food, everybody's hungry, there's all kind of widows in Israel who are starving and struggling. A widow during that time, there was no social security. There was no public aid. It was dependent on the family. If there was no family, they would be stricken. Could Death could result in it. He says, during this time, there were all kind of widows in Israel. When Elijah, we all know Elijah. We love Elijah. We all look to him. He's the greatest, one of the greatest prophets we've ever seen. He didn't go to a single Jewish widow. He went to this lady who was a Gentile of a nation we hate. And he went to her. He continues. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Now, I've been trying to think of, like, le- le- leprosy was horrible. It was terribly contagious, feared. Um, we understand how HIV spread. We understand that if there's no open wounds or anything, that you're pretty much safe. But if you start talking about um, uh, needles that don't have air on them if you start talking about having open wounds so this would leprosy would be viewed if there was a person that had hiv that they were infective they were a carrier they had open wounds all of them that were actually like blood and stuff was oozing out continually 
See, we understand that that's contagious, so we would want like protective gloves. We want to be able to care for them, but it would be very, we'd, we have to be careful so that we don't get infected. Probably the main reason why the first thing a police officer asks somebody, do you have anything that will poke me? If you watch a lot of cops like I do, do you have anything that's going to poke me or stab me because they don't want to get infected? So leprosy was like a bad, bad disease. There were all kind of people with leprosy when Elijah was around. He said, but the Naaman came from Syria, the nation that they hated. So he was Syrian, another Gentile. And not only was he a Gentile, he was in their army. Not only was he in their army, he was a commander. This is a guy they would like to see dead. He comes into town. He goes and sees Elijah. He's got, Elijah, I have a problem. I have leprosy. I thought maybe if I go to you, I could get some help. Elijah looks at him. He says, go down to the Jordan River, dunk yourself seven times, and you'll be good. He says, are you kidding me? I drove all of this way to be told to just go dunk myself in the Jordan River seven times. He's like, I'm out of here. Then his helper says, listen, you came all of this way. If he told you to, to do 17 somersaults, stand on your head for five minutes, then do something crazy, eat a bunch of crickets, you would have done it in a heartbeat. How hard is it to go down to the river and dunk yourself? Well, now you say that, that's a pretty good idea. That's true. He goes and he dunks himself seven times. He's cleansed of leprosy. And at this moment, they understand they're angry. The Messiah, wait a minute, to Gentiles? And their reaction almost doesn't even make sense. We read it because we're most of it, we're predominantly Gentiles. So we think, cool, man, the Messiah came for us as well. No problem here. Verse 28, and the people in the synagogue were filled with rage and they heard these things and they got up and drove him to this, out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. He gave them their miracle. I've never had a lynch mob coming after me. Never had a, like, but it's pretty hard if you got more than like two people chasing you. Like you just can't get away. And he vanishes. And I'm reading this story this week, and it's like, man, I've said, I've quoted stuff from the Bible that was way harsher than this. What caught, and I've never been run out of church like you guys were going to kill me. Am I doing something wrong? And I'm, I'm searching, I'm searching. There's not a lot of good answers. And Alistair Begg, I heard him say something that I thought was, that was just wonderful. He said that the problem here is that Jesus goes to Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue. He's in there. They're doing their religious thing. And he said that the problem, the heart of this issue, which we still see today, is that they felt that they um, deserved the Messiah's coming, but they didn't need him. And as they looked out at the Gentiles, they thought, oh, they need a Messiah. They need a Savior but they don't deserve him. And so it's this attitude of self-righteousness that you have maintained a law, that you go to church on Sundays, you do this, you've really cleaned yourself up. You don't, you know, you don't, you don't swear anymore. You've cut way down, you know, like you barely ever cuss anymore. You're pretty much at church, you know, enough times. You, you know, you do a bunch of really good stuff. You tuck your shirt in, comb your hair, have a job. I don't, I just totally deserve a savior, but I don't need one. I got it under control. Then you look at other people and you say, oh, man, they need a savior big time, but they are so unworthy. <laughs> so they need to sing the song. We sing, I'm so unworthy. They're like, yeah, they need to start singing that song, but don't to save them. You know, yes, you're so unworthy. Like, I'm just like, you know, God's going to leave you there. It's the condition of the heart. Everything is like, it's wrong. And he addresses this, saying, you're not better than everybody else. And as we look at this story, I'm thinking, well, what's the issue for us? The first thing is, is that Jesus' message is clear. When you hear people start questioning, Jesus never claimed to be this Messiah. He never claimed to be God. It's absolutely False. The sole reason that they executed him is that he claimed to be God. That was the only thing that they had against him. 
that he claimed that he was the Messiah over and over and over again. And this story he claimed to be God. They wanted to kill him, which absolutely is the correct thing according to Old Testament law. If somebody claims to be God and they're not, it's blasphemy. Stone them with rocks. Kill them. Jesus claimed to be God, so we're stuck with three options. Was he lying? Was he crazy? Or was he Lord? He did miracles. He rose from the dead. He did all kinds of things that validate. He fulfilled insane prophecy from the Old Testament. All kinds of things. His lineage, when he was born, how he did things. It was a, it's overwhelming. And so now if he's Lord, that creates a real problem for us because see his mission is clear even here you everywhere throughout the old testament it's not that he just came for the jewish people he came for all of humanity his genealogy that he takes us jesus all the way back to adam he is totally grounded in human history and his mission is clear to restore the lost to god that he would redeem them from their sin and the thing is the bible will totally prick you Amy Carmichael says this. I have it written in my Bible in the back, and I really like this quote. It says, if you've never heard from the word of God, you probably have never heard the word of God. The Bible convicts us all. I mean, I so remember when I first started going to church. I would go to church. I'd sit there. I was there for the free pizza Tuesday nights. And I appeased my friend. Every single Tuesday, the pastor would get up and he'd start talking from the Bible. And in my little head, I would have a little notepad. And everything he said that I disagreed with, which was a lot of stuff, I would take little mental notes to tell my friend how I totally disagreed with everything that he said. The audacity that Jesus is the only way. Come on. Come on. That's not right or fair. Who does like who does this guy think he is? Problem is, is God said it. Jesus is the one who said, "I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me." So the issue is, let's be fair to Jesus. The things he said force him into three categories: liar, lunatic, or lord. And if he said things that we disagree with, but then we conclude through the evidence that he absolutely is Lord, that he rose from the dead, he ascended, that the Spirit came, that the church history, there's all sorts of evidence that force us into a decision. We're forced to a decision. And I would rather step on people's toes with the truth than to to sugar it down, to sugarcoat it, to make the, the, the medicine go down well. You see, since I got married to my wife, I've learned a little bit about Spanish medicine. Spanish medicine, the philosophy in Spain with medicine, is very different than the medical philosophy in the United States. In Spain, if you're diagnosed with cancer, if the doctors know you have cancer, their philosophy is we don't want to tell them that they have cancer. We don't want to tell them of the problem because that would make their life Miserable having to worry about that they're going to be dying and that there's cancer eating away at their body. So we're just going to tell the patient that everything's okay, that they're fine, um, and give them medicine without just take vitamins or whatever. It'll make you feel better. Because they're trying to help the person not worry to be concerned with. And in the United States, you get a little, like, tiny little mole. It may be cancer, maybe not. Man, we go, oh, we're going we're gonna to biopsy. We're looking at it. If it's cancer, this is your option. All the way down to, like, death. I mean, we just, our doctors just, like, Boom, in your face. This is how it is. And if it's not, then that's good. We come up with a whole plan so that you can make decisions, so you can research, and so that you can fight it. I don't know about you, but I'll take our method. You know, I, there's, just a, there's a side about the Spanish one that sounds kind of attractive to me, you know. But when we're talking about eternal things, it's important that God revealed his word to us. Jesus came. He fulfilled prophecy. He did all kinds of stuff to validate who he was. So we need to have the truth so that he could step on our toes. And so in John 3.36, another thing that Jesus said that's kind of hard, he says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. 
But he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So Jesus says, if you believe in me, eternal life. If you don't, God's wrath abides on you. Ouch, I don't like that. You can email me and I'll say, I, re- I don't like it either. It really doesn't seem fair to me. But then again, we don't want fair. Because fair is, that actually is fair. Like having eternal life, that's God's graciousness. And so we're forced into a decision. You can believe in Christ and receive life, or you can reject him and have God's wrath upon you. Jesus makes it also clear throughout the scriptures that there's no middle ground. There's no such thing as I'm like, well, not for me, but for a girl to be kind of pregnant. You either are pregnant or you're not pregnant. There's no such thing as like, well, I'm kind of a Christian. You know, I like going to church. No, no, no. Jesus makes it very clear that you're in or you're out. And we're forced into a decision. And then as we become Christians, as we are in Christ through faith, not by works, Paul in Romans chapter 6, I love this. He asks a little question because he knows how we all think. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? And see, in my little brain, it makes total sense. It's like, okay, I was this much a sinner. God's grace covered the gap so that I might be right with him in eternity. But check it out. If I murder somebody, I need a little bit more grace. If I go just live in my flesh, oh, if I just keep stretching it out, Think about that. If I keep just going and sin, the gap's going to get greater. And just think how great that's going to make God look. It's going to make his grace bigger. And Paul cuts us off at the past real quick as our minds start thinking about this thought. He says, may it never be. The heart is no. We're saved through faith. He puts the spirit in us. He redeems us. He transforms us that we may walk with him. And on Wednesday night, we had this great discussion at Bible study. Uh, Don Fredericks was bringing up, well, what, like our, in our heart of reaching the world, what's our attitude? Are we walking around the place saying, oh, you're a lousy sinner. You don't do this. You don't do that. You're in sin, blah, 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 blah. And you're going to hell. We want kind of the gospel of Nineveh. You know, that Jonah, go to Nineveh, 40 days, you're all going to burn. Jonah, I think, liked that message. But our heart is, if we turn Luke back to chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 18, see the thing is, each of us, we are the poor, we're captive, we're blind, we're oppressed. And when we trusted in Jesus, the light has come clear to us. We're no better than anybody else in the world except God shed his grace on us. I was blind, yet now I see. Friday night, we celebrated my brother's-in-law's birthday. He turned 31. 31's the big, you know, it's like 21. No, we all joke. But what I said is, I'm like, oh, he loves root beer. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go into beverages and more. And they sell root beer by the keg. And so I bought a little mini keg of root beer to bring to his birthday party. We thought, oh, you're turning 31. Let's live it up with a keg of root beer. So I had to go into beverages and more in Mission Valley on a Friday night. (laughs) Root beer is like their smallest product they sell there. And on a Friday night in Mission Valley, while March Madness is going on in San Diego State's going to town, the place was packed. And I'm walking in there. And I'm definitely kind of feeling like inside, like, oh, I'm really uncomfortable. Not really uncomfortable, like in judgment, really uncomfortable, like, man, I was so these people like 15 years ago or when, like, yeah, I was 21, 15 years, keep it legal. But if I had it, I would, I mean, I, even before that, I was fake IDing it, going into places like this to like, oh, let's load up Friday night. We're going to have a huge party all laughing. And I, I remember Thinking, what not to think is the religious self-righteousness would be to stand up on the counter. All you people are going to hell. You're living up in the flesh. This booze isn't going to do anything for me. You're doomed. That's not what God wants from us. What I felt was, as I was checking out, seeing all these young people, like the handwriting was on the wall. You don't have to have discernment to figure out what's Friday night, 
guys are carrying, you know, three cases of beer like this, carts filled with whiskey, gin, all stuff. They're not just having a glass of wine with their dinner. Like it, like drunkenness was going to follow. And I remember being in line with my keg of root beer, checking out, just my heart breaking, thinking, you guys, it's not going to bring you any satisfaction. You're going to wake up tomorrow with receipts in your pocket that you don't even remember what you bought. You're going to be hungover. You're going to be miserable. You think you're going to be happy for a little bit, but there's no true contentment. I was just like you. You, Jesus came to give you ultimate satisfaction if you'd only trust in him. He changed my life. I was just like you. That needs to be the attitude of our heart. But sometimes sharing the gospel results in people wanting to drag you to the edge of town to throw you off the cliff and kill you because they hated Jesus. Our flesh is bad. So let's pray. Father, we do. Lord, I thank you, Lord, uh, for, for the hard words that Jesus spoke in so many different situations. Father, I thank you that you loved us so much, that you love us so much, that in eternity plan past, you came up with a plan, Lord, to send the Messiah, Lord, that he would live the perfect life, that he would go to the cross, that he'd be executed, Lord, for my sin. Father, Lord, that he would bear the sin of the whole world, of all peoples upon him, that they might have life. And I thank you, Lord, that it's believing only, Lord, that it's not about doing a bunch of good works, it's not about cleaning ourselves, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, as we look at the the words in the life of Christ, I thank you, Lord, that he was not afraid to challenge our sin, that he wasn't afraid to make it hurt for us, that we would have to face the reality of our condition before you. And as he shares this bad news with us, he also said, I'll pay for it all. I'll do it all. Just trust in me. Believe in me. Walk with me. And Father, I thank you that um, for each person who's here, Lord, we pray for those in this room who, who haven't reached that place of accepting you as Savior. Uh, Father, I pray that you would, um, Father, that you would, make them hurt in their soul, that they would come to to realize their lostness apart from you and that they would turn to you, Lord, in faith and that they would receive this eternal life found in Christ. For those of us, Lord, who have trusted in Christ, Lord, we pray that you would, Father, that first you would help us to give you our life, Lord, all aspects of it, that, Lord, if you truly are Lord as we believe, then there are implications. And we pray, Lord, that you would, you would humble our pride, prideful spirit, Lord, that you would help us um, to turn to you, that we would walk with you, that we would fall in love with you and your word, that you would transform us. And Father, as we live our lives, Lord, as we're salt in this earth, as we are lights in darkness, Father, I pray that you would um, help us to see people, Lord, through your eyes, through your lens, that we would no longer see people through the flesh. Father, give us compassion for the lostness of humanity, Lord. Help us, Lord, to follow your lead in sharing Christ, Lord, that we would um, just love on those people that don't know you, that we would remember, Lord, uh, where we were apart from Christ. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.